Proctor here with some announcements before I get into this week's episode. CycleConf will be taking place on the 21st through 23rd of April. CycleConf is a conference about CycleJS, a functional reactive programming framework for the front end. Visit cycleconf.com to find out more. The call for presenters is now open for Velocity London 2017. Velocity is inviting proposals from system engineers, architects, developers, system administrators, operation managers, site reliability engineers, and more. People on the front line with stories of great successes and worthy failures, especially if they provide clear ideas for what to do next. Proposals will be considered for the following types of presentations, 40-minute presentations, discussions, or panels, as well as three-hour tutorials. The deadline to apply is May 2nd. For more information and to submit your proposal, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 68627. The call for presenters is now open for software architecture in London. Proposals will be considered for both 50 and 90 minute presentations, as well as three hour tutorials. 15 minute sessions will be interspersed throughout the conference to introduce new concepts, a best practice, a view into the future, while the 90 minute sessions will dive deeper, giving you information, techniques, and workflows you can bring back to work and begin using immediately. They are also looking for intense three hour tutorials that involve hands-on examples, working with other attendees, and frameworks and processes to implement for significant change in your current architecture. Apply to speak by May 2nd. For more information and to submit your proposal, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 68630. Tickets for FlatMap Oslo are available now. FlatMap Oslo is a functional programming conference with a focus on Scala and the JVM taking place May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to 2017.flatmap.no to learn more. ElixirConf EU will be taking place May 4th and 5th with tutorials on May 3rd. ElixirConf EU is a community conference created to promote education, networking, and collaboration within the Elixir, Erlang, and Ruby communities. For more information, visit www.elixirconf.eu. OSCON will be taking place May 8th through the 11th in Austin, Texas. The O'Reilly Open Source Convention combines the experience of the open source community with ideas and strategies for using open source tools and technologies and gives you exposure to the full stack and all possible configurations. There's no event quite like OSCON, the best place on earth to sharpen your skills and discover new techniques, making you better at what you do and igniting your love of all things code. Registration is now open. Save 20% on most passes with code USRG. For more information and to register, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 50016. LambdaConf will be taking place May 25th through the 27th in Boulder, Colorado, with training days available on the 22nd and 23rd and many conferences on the 24th. For more information, visit lambdaconf.us. El Miro will be taking place June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zabuki and Richard Fillman will be speaking, and the rest of the speaker lineup is online. Early bird tickets are sold out, but standard tickets are still available. For more information and to register, visit elmeurope.org. Zuri Hack 2017 will be taking place on Zurich on the 9th and 11th of June. Beginning of June 2017, the Zurich Haskell Meetup Group will organize Zuri Hack 2017, a three-day Haskell hackathon hosted at the HSR Hochschule für Technik Rapperswil. This is the sixth Haskell Hackathon organized by the Zurich Haskell Meetup Group 
and one of the first which is located at the HSR, a fantastic venue located right at Lake Zurich and providing space for 300 participants. For more information and to register, visit zurihack.info. Curion Barcelona will be taking place June 19th through 20th, a new and unusual nonprofit conference focused on programming languages and emerging challenges in industry. Curion is a new conference focused on the intersection of emerging languages and emerging challenges in industry, as well as new ideas and paradigms in software development. Curion also seeks to act as a conduit for fairing understanding and ideas back and forth between industry and academic programming languages, software engineering, and system research communities. The CFP is currently open, but closes soon on April 14th. For more information, to submit your proposal, and to keep an eye open for registration, visit www.curry-on.org. O'Reilly Fluent Conference will be taking place June 19th through the 22nd in San Jose, California. Fluent spotlights the crucial technologies and frameworks of the web stack. JavaScript, HTML5, CSS, React, Angular, Containers, Docker, and other emerging tools that are transforming the way web developers work. Join hundreds of leading experts, innovators, and web professionals for top-notch training, advanced development, and engineering content, and career-building networking opportunities at Fluent. Save 20% with discount code USRG on most passes. Visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 61309 for more information and to register. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet closure developers and learn about what's happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using closure. The CFP is currently open and closes Friday, April 21st, and registration is open as well. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and to keep updated. BuzzConf is a nonprofit open space conference about functional programming taking place from the 3rd to the 5th of August in Germany, near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming related topics in any language. Ticket registration is already open and you can find out more at www.bus-conf.org. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. And if that's how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Federico Carrón. Federico, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I am an Erlang Analytics developer. I have worked in my career for the past 10 years, mostly as a developer, but I am also quite into what now it's called DevOps, before system administration of servers. So I am a, a developer, but I love servers on everything related to operating systems too. So I knew you from the Erlang community and 
other people might know you from a broader community because you touch on a bunch of different topics with your this is not a mana tutorial on medium and we'll get there but if you're doing all these things you're playing with all of these languages you're pretty pervasive from your tweets about languages and your not a mana tutorial and everything else how do you first get exposed into software and software development huh. well when i was young my uncle bought me a computer and i started playing with debian with the linux distribution so i started playing with beam on python mostly and afterwards i decided that i wanted to study computer engineering well i started learning quite a few languages on the university but also by my own when i was 18 i needed to work for food <laughs> so i started working for hp sun microsystems after working a while and working with servers i decided that i wanted to change my career and focus on development because i I prefer to develop on, um, well, that's it. It was, first of all, because somebody introduced me to development and afterwards because it was funny. Uh, and also I could pay the rent and, and live with it. So I like it. So you start out with Debian and Python and a few things. You learn some languages in university, but you go off in, you start doing a little bit more on the side in university as well. What was that interest that made you say, there's a bunch of languages out here that I'm going to go start doing this versus just try and get good at whatever university is teaching you. Well, the answer is I had too many issues solving the problems I had to solve with languages I learned. The first language I learned was Python, and it was pretty easy. I didn't know anything about OOP at that moment. I used Python like mostly as a scripting language to play and to do different stuff. But at university, I had to work with Pascal, with C, with Java, with C Jarp. I like learning those languages. However, there was a point at my university career, career where I found that C++ was really more a problem than a solution for the work I was doing. I was writing a BitTorrent client on C++, and I had too many memory issues. I had a lot of issues with concurrency, with mutex, semaphores. Etc. The normal problems a lot of people have with C++. After a few months developing that with, I don't know, more than 20,000 lines of code, I started realizing that maybe I wasn't good at, at development. I started asking myself, hey, maybe the issue is not, this is difficult. Maybe the issue is that I'm not good at this. And so I started talking with different guys. I started Googling and asking questions. At one point, I found a great book that changed quite a bit my career. The book is called Coders at Work. It's a great book. I don't remember the author name, but he interviews different guys from different communities. Um, the interviews were really interesting. Um, there were a few guys stating that they had too many issues writing C++ code. And um, also there was Joe Armstrong, the creator of Erlang, stating that Erlang was really good at concurrency. So at that point, I decided, hey, first of all, I want to check Erlang. Maybe that would be a good fit for what I am doing or for the type of problems I like. And also, that book talked about a lot of other languages. So it was a break point at my career because it was, I saw other people that were very interesting, having very strong opinions and very contradictory opinions. So I said, okay, there is a world that is bigger than the one that I have been learning at the university. So, yeah, problems with those languages were the ones that made me ask myself if there was anything 
any other thing that was interesting enough to investigate. So a lot of fortune with just discovering coders that work at the right time, as opposed to just saying a lot of people, it seems, will go on and say, yes, I have these problems. These are just problems. Nobody solves these. If I've noticed this problem across Python and C++ and C and Java and C Sharp and whatever these languages that I might be exposed to in university or getting into a career early on at a corporation, you're like, yeah, these are just problems. But you managed to stumble upon coders at work. Did someone recommend that to you? Or how did you find that to be exposed to all this other ideas? Well, since I love reading, not only computer stuff, I love reading newspapers and books. Um, here in Argentina, there are not a lot of computer books, neither English. Uh, there are not books like really normal books. On um, Every time I went to USA or Europe, I went to a library and I started like buying a lot of books, mostly O'Reilly stuff or Manning, etc. That's also how I got introduced to, to other stuff. But yeah, it was by, in, in a way, it was by luck because I found coders at work that, you know, in a way opened my mind. But also because I was having, like I said, issues implementing things I had to do. And also I had a lot of questions. For example, at that point, OOP was like the panacea, the, the, the best thing in the world. And I really couldn't understand how somebody could love writing a lot of classes on work. Like I felt more like a biologist doing, I don't know, yeah, deciding this is a son of this on... I didn't like what I, I had to do. It was not solving a problem. I was like creating abstractions for creating abstractions. I even had one a discussion with a co-worker where we were writing a game. Uh, it was a racing game. Um, he wanted to have the number of liters of gas as an abstraction. He wanted to create the cubic meters as a class. And for me, that didn't make any sense. I preferred to use an integer or float, and that's all. I wanted to solve an issue not create abstractions for creating abstractions. So those types of things made me question if there was any other way to solve the issue more directly. That's what I was asking. It sounded like you were fortunate in actually picking up the book at the right time because I've heard good things myself about coders at work, but I don't know that I've ever picked it up. And to couple that with the time that you're having the problems, seems like it's very opportune, especially when you go and say, oh, I'm doing concurrency stuff. All of a sudden, you read the Joe Armstrong segment that talks about, hey, here's Erlang for concurrency, seeing those problems and seeing solutions when it comes through. So you read that, you say, okay, I'm going to check out Erlang. When you're making that jump, what was that jump looking like? I know you were having problems before, but Erlang's a different beast. And if you haven't been exposed to anything else like it, you can either get it or you can stumble upon it for a little while. Was it something that clicked for you pretty immediately or was there a little transition there as well? To be honest, learning the syntax wasn't the difficult part. I learned it pretty fast. Some people don't like it. I get why they don't like it. Afterwards, if you want, we can talk about that. But it was difficult for me to, to learn it. I read a book. And I think it was called Learning Erlang or something like that. It was the, the book at that moment, the normal book you read to learn Erlang. And I learned the, the syntax, but I didn't get it. It took me like two or three years until I could really understand completely what Erlang was about. So yeah, I knew there was something there, but I couldn't like grasp it. I couldn't understand it completely until I hit issues working with Python and Ruby and also JavaScript. Until I didn't have real issues, I didn't get why Erlang was so, so useful. I knew there was something, but I couldn't grasp it 
until quite some time. So it was more not the syntax of Erlang, but some of the semantics along the lines of OTP is pretty much considered a huge part of Erlang. It's, if you're not using OTP and processes, you're not really taking advantage of everything Erlang has to offer. And it's that transition of how do I think of processes? How do I think concurrently now? Exactly. But it's not only the OTP on process stuff that is difficult from my point of view. It takes time to understand if you need to create a new process. It takes time to architecture how process communicate. It's like you have to relearn development in some way. In a project where I worked, a chat system, I worked with really good C++ developers. They developed one year almost a good chat system. The issue was that the chat system didn't support more than 50 connected users. So the customer asked me to help it, to try to check why some Erlang system could only handle 50 users. And when I saw it, I saw that they created bottlenecks by using processes. They have like one process per user that is connected to the server, but all the processes talk to only one process that was a general bottleneck. And that was way worse than developing something in Java or in Python with only one process slash thread. So in a way, you can learn the syntax. You can also learn what's a gen server, what's OTP, etc. It doesn't take so much time. You can learn it in a few weeks. However, until everything makes sense or you understand completely how to architecture your system, yeah, from my point of view, it took me quite a lot of time. You also have to be experienced with other languages from my point of view, to really appreciate the good parts of Erlang. So if it takes you a couple of years before you start to click and understand how you architect a system and make the processes coordinate with each other, what was the thing that helped it click? Was that just you started getting into doing Erlang more and more and you were doing it? Or was there some other thing on the outside? Did you have someone mentoring you and guiding you down Erlang? What was the thing that helped that click and some of those realizations of, ah, okay, this is how you structure stuff. So first of all, more years of development in general, but mostly I really appreciate the help that Inaka Brujo, the CTO of Inaka, well, I really appreciate his help because most of the things that were difficult for me were because I didn't have experience in Erlang per se. I had experience with the language. I knew simple stuff, but I didn't have experience setting up the architecture of the processes, discussions with him, disagreeing in a lot of things, discussing, etc., was really eye-opening for me. So in a way, mentoring was thing that was really important for me. And up to that point, I knew Erlang, but I didn't knew it really well in a practical manner. And were you at Anaka at this time, or was this just around the community and you know of Anaka and you just happened to be at user groups or something or come across Bruho? I knew Inaka, I knew they did Erlang. Um, there was one teammate, Marcos, that worked with me on another company. Um, he moved into Inaka, he didn't knew Erlang. He was doubting if he should go to Inaka, and I said, hey, yes, please go. Erlang is really cool, you will like it. And like three or five or four years after, we discussed with him, we had a talk with him, and he said, hey, you should do an interview with, with Inaka, you will like it. So he was in some way like, um, I don't know if in English you say it like that, but uh, like a rat laboratory, like the, the rats of laboratory that you experience with. Well, he, he went over there and he liked it. He learned a lot. He worked with really great companies. 
So after that, I joined uh, Inaka on, in only a few weeks or a few months. I had the basic airline experience that Bruho acquired in a lot of years of, of working in production with Aula. So it was essentially the, you were playing with it on your own and enjoyed it, but it took getting thrown into Erlang every day and having these deeper conversations before it finally clicked. But once you were in that situation, it happened relatively quickly? Yes. And also, before moving into Erlang, I worked one year or two years with Node.js. That was really a pain. I, I really didn't like it. I was coming from Python and Ruby, working with Rails on the Django. Um, I had concurrency issues, and I decided to play a little bit with Node.js. Um, at least for me, writing callbacks, that way of writing code is not the way I think. So after that, I was more open to learning or to work really on a daily basis with Erlang. Not because of the syntax, because of the difficulty of, of having to think in a different way. So yeah, there were many factors that made me go into working with Dell. So what were some of the big takeaways then? Once you actually dug in, were there any shortcuts that you can tell people that helped make the thinking and processes click? I know there's been some videos from Erlang Solutions and Torben Hoffman where he's talked about thinking like an Erlanger. He had a video even titled that, but what are some of the things that you can suggest that if people are on the periphery of Erlang or Elixir or whatever, or just even outside in a microservice world that says, here's how you structure things. If it's not this, maybe here's the guidance or where to start thinking about some of these problems to be able to help speed that along in the same way that Brujo gave you some tips. So my answer would be reading code, reading open source code. Erlang has... From my point of view, it's one of the best communities I know, and it has one of the best. The libraries are really great. For example, Cowboys, the HTTP server code is really great. I have learned a lot about it. BurnMQ, the MQTT server is also great. RabbitMQ, Core. the code is really, really easy to read. So when you read it, it takes time because you have to think about the, how they designed to architecture the, the libraries, but you really learn a lot. I have learned, I don't know, 100 times more reading Erlang code than reading Python or Ruby code in, or, or other libraries uh, or languages code because the libraries written in Erlang that are battle-proven on production, they're really well designed. So when you read the code, you're not only learning about Erlang, you're learning how to architecture a good application. So my recommendation is the best, I think, that somebody that is learning Erlang or even somebody that wants to learn how to create good applications that can scale out is to read about how those libraries were created because there are a lot of blog posts about those libraries I just mentioned, but also reading the code. It's really easy. It's really straightforward, but you learn a lot. The difficult part is understanding why they chose to architecture the, the, the libraries like that. And so it sounds like Erlang appeals to the way you think about problems, especially now after you've read the code, you've had these conversations. What else about Erlang? And we can throw an elixir with that, the basic beam languages, and we can refine if it's one or the other. But what is it about those languages that appeal to you and make you excited? You mentioned reading the code. You have a lot of people who 
think about how to structure applications, the processes make sense to you. What else about that is something that gets you excited about doing Erlang and or Elixir? The answer for me, the thing that I like most of Erlang is how you can see what your code is doing. You can inspect very well what the VM is doing. The JVM has a lot of good tools to see what your code is doing. Well, Erlang is even better. You have a lot of utilities to check what your code is doing. The shell is awesome. You can connect to a running node. You can debug stuff that is running live. You can swap the code you're running live. You can do a lot of things. It's like in some way you can touch code. You can play with it. It's more similar to playing with a terminal. I love operating systems. I love to be able to to send a command to the kernel and get an answer, play with it. Well, Erlang in some way is more similar to that than to code normal stuff, compile it, and after a minute get an answer. That's the thing that got me, yeah, really fascinated into Erlang. And also the other thing is I completely was amazed when I saw that sending a message to a remote node with Erlang is the same that sending a message to a local process. There is no like difference between talking to a server that is in India or in Japan than talking with a process that is running locally. That was completely amazing for me. And you mentioned the monitoring of a live running system and being able to inspect what's going on. That was one of the things that when I was first shown Observer in Erlang, where you can actually dig into the processes and you got a GUI, but you also have the terminal tools to do that if you don't have the GUI available. It felt very small talkish in a sense. At least the small talk that I've seen from Alan Kay's presentations, where when you watch videos of him giving a presentation, he's like, well, what if we just do this? And we're like modifying the runtime as it's working on it. It's the observer seemed very much that perspective, especially coming from someone who's done some small companies and had to kind of inherently do DevOps before DevOps was a thing, when you're having to fill the multiple hats, that kind of stuff seems completely invaluable. Is that part of what led you down the DevOps route too, in that excitement? In some way, yes. For me, Erlang, the, the most interesting part of Erlang is not the syntax per se. However, I like the syntax nowadays. I think it's quite interesting. But apart from that, the part that I love is the BIM the VM, because it's more like an operating system. It's like a full operating system on either you like it or not, but it has a lot of decisions were taken by really smart people. I like those decisions for the type of issues and problems I solve on a daily basis. Um, well, yes, Observer was the first thing I saw. It's really cool. I don't use it on a, on a daily basis. It's something that it's fun to show to other people. But there are other tools that you can use for libraries to get a lot of information or even more deep information than with the Observer. The Observer is really cool when you're developing on your local machine or you want to show off somebody, hey, I can do this. And it's really cool. I'm not saying it's not cool, but there are other stuff that gets you like into a more yeah, underground level. You can do a lot of stuff with, with the different libraries. There are really good stuff like Eprof, Cprof, different profiling libraries that get you a lot of information that are quite amazing. And I have never seen something like that in another language. Yeah, and as you said, the Observer just seems one of those, like, this is the simple version. But even with the simple version, here's how much you get. Try doing this in your Node.js app or your Ruby app or even your Java app. You can start to do this on the JVM a bit, but it becomes a bit heavy-handed and you got to make sure you get the right tools and 
potentially professional license and enterprise license kind of stuff. And that observer is that neat little, hey, just at the very basic level, you can understand what's going on in your system as it's running. As you said, there's these deeper tools that people have written even to get more data. But it's one of those things like, look, we get all the power across multiple nodes. As you said, we can share these things across India or Japan or wherever the servers are running, and we can still inspect them all across that nodes. So you've been playing with Erlang. You also do a lot, and this, and I want to talk a little bit about your not amount of tutorial. So Erlang's your big love. We kind of covered what you love about it and some of those things you think are cool. But you've done a couple of these things that are looking at other languages. You've looked at other languages before. You've got some ML background that you've played with. You've got some Lisp background that you've played with. You're doing this stuff. What have you found out about some of the different languages and how you've come in and played with these things? And what appeals to you about the different aspects of the different languages? So for writing backends, at least from my point of view, there's nothing that is as good as Erlang or Elixir or any language that runs on the Erlang VM. However, for writing command line tools, for writing, well, obviously, front-ends or web stuff, there are other great languages. On After 10 years of developing or 11 years, I found that I like static type systems. At the beginning, I didn't like them because my first language was Python. After I worked with C, C++, Pascal, Java. And from my point of view, the compiler was like somebody that was trying to make me more slow. It didn't help me a lot. On C++ with GCC, I got a lot of errors that were complete. It was impossible to understand them. After a while, after a few years working with C++, I knew by memory, by heart, that that type of issue, that type of error means that. But somebody that didn't have that issue 10 times wouldn't know about that. It was completely impossible to understand, especially when you work with templates. It was like Chinese, and I don't know Chinese. <laughs> so at one point, after learning online, I decided, hey, this language called Haskell, that now everybody knows about it, seems interesting. There were quite a few guys that work in Erlang that mentioned Haskell on people on Reddit, Hacker News, etc. that that mentioned Haskell. So uh, I tried to learn Haskell. And the thing that I liked the most was the type inference, the way they did polymorphism, type classes, etc. So I decided, hey, let's check what other languages have similar parts with Haskell without the parts I don't like, for example, Monads. So that's how I found that there were a lot of languages, mostly based on ML, that have a good type system, that have compilers that help you, that they are not somebody that blocks you. And nowadays, they have become quite popular. There are quite a few languages that have taken the path since I, I was investigating at that point. I think that there was a process in my case that was very similar to the process that other developers had. At the beginning, you learn a language like C++ or Java, where the compiler was blocking you. Okay, after that, you move to a language like Python or Ruby or JavaScript, where you can write code and it doesn't block you. Yeah, you get issues on production, but hey, anyways, on C++ or Java, you can also have that issues. You can get null pointer exceptions, you can get issues with memory, etc. in the case of C++ or C. So why not have, why not play with something like, like Python or Ruby that have the same issue, but they don't make you slower. 
So at one point, I, I found like a middle point, something, uh, a type system that could help me, but that was not blocking me. So that, that's ML. That's why I like it. You don't have to write tests. It, it helps you find issues before going to, into production, but without the blocking part, without making you slow. So you find ML, you start playing with this because you like the type system. Was the first hit of getting a type system once you got into Anaka and start using Dialyzer? Or was this kind of before that set up even? Because I know Anaka was kind of, and Brujo, it was very much use Dialyzer, use the specs, they will find you stuff. I will bet you a beer for it, as he mentioned on his episode of the podcast. is like, if you're not doing this, I will go and help you do this and bet you a beer that I will, we will at least find one kind of type error. Was this pre-Erlang with Anaka where you're starting to get into Dialyzer or did that start setting that up for saying, yes, this starts to become valuable? No, I found the ML world before Erlang, but it was, I never wrote production code on ML. I only write stuff for playing or to write small tools. For example, I love Elm the web language that is like uh, a subset of Haskell. And I love it. I have done quite a few things, especially for internal tools for me, for example, a radio player to be able to listen to the radio while I'm coding, etc. But I never wrote really production code. But I don't know. The Lisp on ML part of me is more like for playing, not for working yet. Probably now that Rust is in a mature state. I will probably start coding production stuff in Rust because I really like it. I don't know much yet about it. I have only played for two or three months with it. But up to now, I didn't find a use case with Haskell or Camel for the type of things I write on a daily basis for production or for customers. But yeah, Dialyzer also helped me to understand that Type systems are not something bad because coming from a Ruby or Python point of view uh, on having coded a lot with C++, for me, the compiler of type systems were academic, something that is not pragmatic, something that is not useful. On Haskell, ML, show me that's completely false. You can write really useful stuff with those type, type systems. And you mentioned Lisp in there which is the dynamic side. So if you're a fan of the ML and the Haskells without the IOs and the monads and everything else, you go back to the dynamic side of the list. What about Lisp appeals to you? Because Erlang's somewhere in that middle where Erlang's dynamic, but still strongly typed and you can get more static runtime typing. But then you got Lisp, which is the dynamic type. So you're swinging all over the spectrum. What about the Lisp part appeals to you? So to be honest, I can't understand how somebody cannot be interested in Lisp. It's a language created in the 50s that, first of all, you can write integers that have an infinite length. Well, not infinite, but a very long length. You can write a number really big. Coming from a Pascal or C perspective, that was, first of all, was amazing. Hey, look, I can write one million nines and it doesn't crash. I don't have to do anything. After that, I think the, the syntax is funny. It's like completely different from other syntaxes, but at the same time, really cool. You only write one operand. Yeah, you write, for example, the plus, 10 digit numbers, space, another number, uh, and another number, and it will sum up everything. 
on, I don't know, it's strange. I like it because the first thing is it's really strange, different. And also it has done a lot of things before other languages. For example, until Java, languages in general for the, well, mainstream developers didn't have a garbage collector. Least had it 40 years before. So that, from my point of view, is really amazing. Macros are completely amazing. Even if I don't think they are great for writing code in production with a big team, they can get messy. But the idea is amazing. It's really to be able to modify your own code and have that idea implemented in the 50s, 60s, from my point of view, is amazing. Compare it with writing, I don't know, Perl code or Java or C++. From my point of view, it had a lot of ideas that were really uh, innovative or yeah, new at that point uh, in, the, in the world of computer science. And nowadays, uh, there are a lot of little tools you can write in this really quickly that are really, really, really great. For example, uh, Emacs is one of the few softwares I use that has more than 20 or 30 years. I don't know that many other softwares that have more than one decade and they are still running on a computer. But I use it on a daily basis and I have quite uh, some illicit code written for Emacs and it works. So I don't know. The, the answer would be because I find it fun and because it's strange and I like strange stuff. Well, I think in your first question of how to not be interested in your list. I would guess your Twitter handle of unbalanced parins says it all of, I don't want to try and match up all this stuff is the thing that throws most people off for initially, but it seems you do and are attracted to some of the languages that are not quite the mainstream and diverge. If you got the MLs with the different syntax, you got Erlang, which is a different syntax. You've got Lisp, which is a different syntax. They're all a pretty simple syntax at the very basics of it, even though they are mostly unfamiliar to most people compared to a Ruby or a Python or a C-based language. Is that something that just you appreciate as well as some of these jumps in the syntaxes force you to know that you're thinking differently now versus falling into the same patterns and saying, oh, this is just a variation on this other thing. I'm going to do it the same way. Yeah, exactly. For me... If the syntax is different or strange, that's not an issue. It's even something interesting. If the semantics are really different, I don't mind learning something new. It's, it can be even fun if it's not really difficult to learn. On the other side, I really hate when you have to do like 20 steps to do a print line. or you, have, For example, in Java, you have to do an import, write system.out.out, write Alan, I think, I, I didn't write Java for quite some time. I don't remember very well. But if the language has a different syntax, but the semantics are simple, and it doesn't try to slow you because of, I don't know why. I like learning those languages. On I always think there might be some use case where that language is useful. I don't think Erlang is useful everywhere. I don't think ML stuff is useful everywhere. But they have their sweet spots where they can be useful. On I think that in general, a good developer is somebody that is like a T. You have to be very good at something that should be like one part. On the other part, you should have like a broad mind that can understand and know about different stuff, not in a very deep way, but at least you should know them somehow. That's why I like learning new languages 
on. I, I even don't think that nowadays Haskell or Camel, Erlang, Elixir, or Lisp are really something underground. In the last few years, they have become quite mainstream in a way. On it's like it's cool to learn about those languages. In the past, my friends of the of the university used to joke because I wrote Erlang, something that was created 30 years ago, and nobody used. And nowadays, it's like, okay, he uses Erlang because it's cool. So in the last few years, it has become cool. And I like it. I don't have an issue with that because I really think those languages are way better than other things that we use in the past because they solve issues in a good way, at least for some part of the problems you can solve in the computer world. They might not solve everything, like C++ or Java, but they try to solve one issue. On that issue, they solve it well enough. And so Lisp is a broad family. Is there any specific instances, refinements of Lisp that you like over other? <laughs> well, I don't like eLisp, <laughs> the Emacs Lisp, but you see it on a daily basis because I love changing my dot files on playing with it. I'm trying to over-optimize my setup because I like it. I like to be you know, on a Friday night changing my Emacs Lisp, but I don't like the language, as I said. However, there are quite a few languages, uh, list languages that are really interesting. Well, the Closure nowadays is pretty popular. I think it has awesome ideas. The standard library, I think it's the best standard library that exists nowadays. It has taken the best ideas from Haskell and made it even simpler. I think that it has a really well sought concurrency model, even if I think that the Erlang model is better. The Clojure language has the second best concurrency model I know about. Uh, well, the implementation is the, the best one I know about apart from Erlang. Um, apart from that, also Racket and Chicken are really cool for writing small scripts that compile to a standard binary. I don't know that much about Racket. I am trying to learn quite a few things. The community is great. The macros are really interesting. Um, yeah, the documentation is amazing. If anybody wants to learn um, Lisp, I would recommend to take a look at, at Racket or Clojure. I think that Racket is better for learning, and Clojure is great for writing code into production. Those are the Lisp I like. And I would like also to mention one that is called Shen. I didn't play so much with Shen, but it's really interesting because it has a lot of ideas coming from the static type system in a Lisp. And there aren't many Lisps that have a static type system. On, it's quite interesting. So the bad part is there is not a lot of documentation and it had, it had a lot of problems with the license, but it has a few interesting ideas. I think I might have heard about that one. I'm not sure. I'll definitely put links to those in the show notes and we'll be curious to check out Shen and, and see if that's the one I'm thinking of. So you also mentioned Rust. And within the past couple of weeks, I've seen some posts from Erlang Elixirist people talking about Doing the NIFs instead of going C or Java doing Rust. Is that something that is interesting you about Rust? That says, I've seen this. Rust has some of this type stuff that I like. And if I need to do the NIFs, I can actually punch out and use Rust now. Is that part of what is getting your appeal of Rust? Or is there something else that's making Rust appeal to you? That's not the reason. However, me on a coworker, we want to write a few NIFs. With Rust, I think there is an, an Elixir library for doing so that helps you. Uh, I have not used it yet, but I want to test it because we have some code in production 
that's written as an if with C, uh, probably it might be a good idea to write it in Rust in the future. But the reason I was interested in Rust was because I see Rust as a C plus ML. So I like C. I don't like C++. I like C because it's simple. It has a lot of issues, but at least it's simple. Uh, well, from my point of view, may maybe because I, I have learned it when I was young. But once you understand a few ideas, it's not very difficult to understand. In general, there are a lot of communities like the OpenBSD community, the Sackless community. They write really great C code. I like reading that code. On, in addition, I like ML. So a community that tries to bring those worlds together, for me, is interesting. Also, uh, I think it's really interesting that Firefox is helping the development of Rust. That also makes it more interesting for me. I really like Firefox and the community of Firefox. So that was the reason why I started reading about Rust. After a while, I saw that Rust has a lot of good ideas, not only the safe part. Nowadays, everybody tries to sell Rust as, as something that is safe and the rest of the things are not safe. There have been quite a few blog posts in the past weeks saying, hey, we have to put all this C code into Rust because it will be more safe. I don't think that's a great idea. In general, rewriting code from scratch doesn't solve always the problems you had. It even recreates a lot of the past problems again. However, I do think that Rust is interesting because it's quite cool to be able to express your ideas with a good type system. And there aren't so many languages that are really low level that don't have a VM that lets you compile into a standalone binary that have a Hindley Milner type system, the type system of most MLs. Um, that by its own, it makes it interesting because when you design your code thinking on types, yeah, you can get great ideas. You, you can think very well things and you can see things from another point of view. It's very different to architecture some application based on processes or coroutines or parallelism, etc. So that by itself, it's interesting. But I don't think the safe part is the most important one. Because if you write, for example, something in Rust that receives, I don't know, a binary from a socket that you got from an end user, I don't know, that might be an integer and you do a division with that and the integer is a zero, it will crash. It doesn't matter what type of system you have. If you get something from somewhere else and you do the operations with that, it can crash. The type system cannot catch everything. It can catch a lot of things, but a lot of bugs or security bugs are related with not only with safety of the memory, but also with the, with other things like protocol, network protocol implementation, etc. For me, to sum up, Rust is interesting because it has a great type system baked into something simple as C in some way. And we're coming up on time, so I want to make sure that before we wrap up, and there's a few more questions we could cover, but is there any topics that you want to make sure that we at least cover or anything in the meantime that you've thought of that we should go back and revisit? Maybe the only one thing I did not mention is that the scheduler of Erlang is one of the main reasons why Erlang is great. If you want, I can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, we can cover that a little bit. What appeals to you about the scheduler? So it's great because it makes sure that one process doesn't bother another process. Each process has like a budget of things they can do. And before some process gets code executed, the scheduler already knows 
before how much time it has to assign to that particular code because it has assigned a budget to that particular code. So it's a preemptive scheduler that will always make sure that the code in general, that the code from one process doesn't bother the code from another process. For example, in Node.js, you don't have that. If one function is really slow, it can be a real problem for another function or for another part of the code that is really fast because you don't have a scheduler that it's more technical and it's difficult to explain it orally, but that makes sure that one part of your code doesn't mess with other parts of your code. So that's something really important because if a user is doing something really slow in your system, you don't want to bother other users. You want to make sure that that problem it only exists in one part of your system. So yeah, that's one of the things I really like about Darwin. Then that's a good overview. And I know I've used the metaphor of if you're in a mega shopping center with a long line and they've only got one line open, I use the metaphor of being stuck behind someone who's getting a huge amount of groceries and you have one thing and you still got to wait and get stuck as opposed to them just everybody gets 20 items at a time and you just keep going back through the line until it's done. And yeah, I've seen a couple of other things start to introduce that as well. I think .NET eventually started to introduce preemptive scheduling and some work balance. And it's interesting to see the ideas that, as you said, Erlang had 30 plus years ago now. Yeah. Anyway, nowadays, there are a lot of languages that are taking good things from Erlang to those systems. I think that's good. I think that's great. However, it's not the same thing to sing something from the beginning on really try to solve an issue, designing a solution for a problem from the beginning, then adding solutions to something that is already working on having it tied up together, glued up together. That's one issue of C++. It's one of the reasons why I'm not a big fan of it. It has great ideas, yes, but it has so many ways of doing something that at the end, everybody chooses the part it likes from it. And that can be an issue because when you write code with 20 persons on a team, if everybody uses some part of the language, that can be really messy. On languages like C Sharp or Java or, well, a lot of mainstream languages, they are incorporating great ideas from functional programming. For example, Java 8, I think, incorporated a lot of good ideas from functional programming. C Sharp has been doing it for quite a bit because they have F Sharp in .NET that is quite amazing. The issue is that you have a lot of way of solving the same issue on it doesn't always compose. It's not always easy to tie the solutions that are really like orthogonal together in, a, in the same code base. And even if it's possible from a technical point of view, it's not something, something good. Because if you have a bug, somebody will be able to solve one part of that bug and somebody else won't. So that's a problem from a project management perspective. Because if everybody knows only a little bit of the language... Yeah, you cannot solve any type of issue. And before we go, I do want to kind of touch on, we've mentioned your This Is Not a Mona tutorial a couple of times. Do you have any takeaways? You've done a number of interviews so far. You've gotten to reach out to a bunch of different people, and I suggest people go read those interviews. But from doing this, have there been any takeaways that you've found across the different people you've interviewed that have been across different languages that say... Here's some things that are worth thinking about more from your time doing the interviews. You mean if there's anything that I have learned that many people have said, like in common, you mean that? 
That or just any key insights from a particular interview. So either things that you've found are common across that are worth thinking about or things that one person said that in this interview, so-and-so said this, which stood out to me. And Yes. Well, there's one interview with Jasper Luis, an airline guy that is really interesting. There's one part I really like. He said, if you don't do experiments before going to, into production, your production code will be an experiment. And I have been working on the software world for 11 years as a professional, working as a code monkey eight hours a day. On 99% of the time, I work on projects that are experiments. And I already know that. Before I was a newbie or somebody new on the community or, or in the development world, so I couldn't raise my hand and say, hey, you are losing money here. But nowadays, I always try to do that. But it's amazing how customers, technical and not technical customers, think that they are saving money without doing tests, without doing continuous integration, etc. It's It's really amazing for me because if you read Reddit or Lobster or Hacker News, you will see that everybody talks about continuous integration, testing, BDD, TDD. It's something like, yeah, it's already known it's from 2009. But even if you work with great companies, it's amazing how most people, project managers, or even technical leaders see that as something not valuable. I understand it why. If you don't get production code, even if your code works well, it's not useful enough. But I think that it's incredible how much time we dedicate to meetings, to sprints, to discussing things that are not always relevant on how little time we dedicate to doing tests. And when I mean tests, I don't mean writing tests. I mean like playing with the code, trying to see and investigate if there is any other way of doing stuff. It's sometimes we are always looking down. We don't try to see like the horizon. We don't try to see, hey, after seven weeks of working, I always think that it's great to, to have one week for experimentation, to check if there's anything that we have done that can be done better, if there's anything that we can investigate or learn to do things better in the, in the future. And it's amazing how a lot of people see that as lost time. Um, yes, maybe one week of those experimentation weeks are not useful, but in most cases they are. So that's one of the things I was really amazed to get an answer from Shasper because there are not a lot of people that say that. A lot of people say, no, we have to be like straightforward. We have to write code. We have to be fast. But at the end, I think you're slower if you don't experiment. That's one thing. And the other thing I have learned is that it's really important, especially when you're learning, to listen to contradictory opinions, to discuss. Nowadays, in general, not only on software, there's an idea that discussion is not good, that discussion is always like a rant or that you cannot have uh, strong opinions. I think strong opinions are important and I like getting strong opinions from very different people. For example, I don't always agree with, with Linus Torvalds or with the OpenBSD community. The other day I was reading a mail that there was having a critique against Go on Rust and I don't agree with them, but I do understand why they wrote that. And for me, it's very important that the community discuss that you always have to try to do it in a good manner, to be respectful. But for me, it's important that when you are learning, that you get exposed to different opinions, different languages, different communities. And yes, 
your head will explode because it's like me. Uh, what's better? ML, Erlang, or least I don't know. Uh, I like the, the three of them and they're really different, but I think they're useful for different stuff. And in the future, I'm sure there will be somebody that will integrate different ideas coming from different places. And people that do that are the people that are smart enough that they take good ideas that are in a way contradictory, but it's like they sum up the good parts of each one of them and they create something new that is even better than those. That's why I think it's important that when you work anywhere, that I think that more experienced people should always let less experienced people express their, their ideas, even if you think they are, they are dumb. Or maybe you should say, yes, I think your idea is dumb, but you should let everybody discuss it because it's in that discussion that you learn stuff. On When doing the interviews, I have done interviews, for example, one interview to the Kafka guys, and I really don't agree with them. In some way, they say that nowadays developers shouldn't write concurrency, that that's too low level. That should be like baked into the framework. On I agree more with the online community. What you should bring is tools, not frameworks that solve the issues. You should give tools to the developers and developers should solve the issue as they want. However, I learned better my position while discussing with them. I don't know if that makes any sense. When I saw somebody that was thinking different, I could learn. And that's one of the reasons I enjoy doing these interviews is getting all those different insights and challenging sometimes the things, but hearing the context of why. Why do you like this? Or why do you think, because some people like dynamic versus static typing, and it's what are the benefits and where does it appeal to you? And where do you see those trade-offs as a person? And being able to establish that context, as you said, you like going across all Lisp, ML, and Erlangs. And in some cases, I want to pick up one for another. So we'll definitely include a couple of those references to the Nautamona tutorial specifically and the links in general. But with that, what stuff are you involved with? Are there any other projects that you want to promote? Are there any other things that you're doing that you want to make sure people know about? Well, nowadays, for the past six months, I have not done so many interviews. Neither I have written a lot of blog posts. Neither have I written a lot of open source code because I have been more focused on trying to, with a few guys here from Argentina, to create a small company. But in the future, my idea is to help, especially people from those three communities, to get closer onto... I want to make sure that the time I have been learning those things should be shortened for new people. For example, on Erlang, I created Spawn Shelter. It's a web, a beautiful web. <laughs> it's a, a web with some drawings, etc., that has a good list of links that are useful for learning Erlang. Well, I want to make that for three communities. I want to help with those type of things. In the future, I hope I will be able to... I am trying to play so that I can learn how to write my own programming language. I want to incorporate ideas for, from those three languages. Um, yes, for the moment, I don't have anything going on, but in the following weeks or months, there are a few things I, I will publish that will be more related with my, my opinions, not only interviews with other guys. And there are a few closed source libraries I have written that I am using in production in different customers that I will probably release. So yeah, you can check my Twitter my blog, uh, not a moda tutorial, and you will see that in, in a few weeks. So Twitter at Unbalanced per in, and you're not a moda tutorial. Was there uh, any other places for people just to keep an eye on? Your GitHub page, your blog? What are the other best places? 
my GitHub page nowadays doesn't have so many things apart from my dot files that are like very well <laughs> configured because I, I love switching computers. It's like in Erlang. Whenever something doesn't work on a computer, I delete it or start from scratch. I don't want to debug it or solve it. Uh, so that the dot files are really cool, but the rest of my stuff is not very well ordered on a lot of things are private. So my idea is this year to, to organize everything on publishing. So yet there's not a lot of stuff, but yeah, I hope to publish it in, in a few weeks. And I'll get links to all those in the show notes so people can come back after listening and find out more and follow you online to be able to keep updated as you put more stuff out there. Awesome. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Federico, for taking your time to join me today. It's a pleasure talking to you. I've been following you online for a while and have been enjoying the stuff you've been putting out. So it was a pleasure talking to you and digging a little bit more in depth about what you're doing. So thank you for taking the time to join me today. It was a pleasure. and I love your podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.